Please open your Bibles with me tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, the famous account of the well-known story of David and Goliath. Uh, we'll be looking just at the first half of the chapter here tonight. It's a, it's a lengthy chapter. Hope to get through the first 30, voices, 30 verses tonight. And uh, I've entitled tonight's message, Faith Before the Fight. Faith before the fight. What we'll see here tonight is much of the battle for David occurred before the actual fight with Goliath. There was challenges of faith and, and things that he had to push through in his own heart, in his own spirit. Before he went out on that battlefield, he had to be ready in faith. And God is going to use this, this uh, kind of pre-setting for David to get him ready for the actual battle. Remember our setting now. Saul is still the acting king in Israel. And he continues to hold on to this position, but really it's not a position that the Lord has for him anymore, yet he is retaining it in his own strength. But God has now already, through Samuel, anointed David as the next king in Israel. But the transition hasn't actually happened. It's happened in the heart of the Lord. And in fact, we saw earlier that the spirit of the Lord had departed Saul. And as a result, Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. And the spirit of the Lord had come upon David. David, you'll remember, was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. And after the spirit of the Lord had come upon David, uh, he was actually called to uh, minister to Saul uh, in the palace because Saul, when he would be tormented by this evil spirit, it was, it was discovered that when David would play his harp and sing worship music in the presence of Saul, that it would actually calm and the, the, the distressing spirit would leave him. And so this David and Saul have met. David is just a young man ministering to Saul, but it's not full time. As we'll see here tonight, there would be times that David would also go back home and tend the sheep for his father. But pick it up with me now uh, in verse 1 of chapter 17. That's kind of the, the setting, the backdrop. But now we find Israel once again embattled with the Philistines. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. So here we see this ongoing conflict with the Philistines. We've, said, we've seen in earlier chapters that this battle has been raging and God has been giving victory at times, but the battle is continuing. The Philistines keep coming out and trying to oppress the people of God. And it says that they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. In other words, the Philistines were still looking to take away that which belonged to the people of God. And the armies square off, and the scripture tells us that they were on two opposite sides of the valley of Elah. That valley still exists in Israel today. It's a, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And it says mountain, but it's really more like a hillside with a valley between. And you can see these two armies kind of squaring off, kind of measuring up one another before they actually go down into the valley and engage. They're just gathering their troops 
and kind of taunting one another before the battle begins. Well, read on with me and we'll notice the tactics and the fear and the intimidation of the enemy against the people of God. Verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's about nine feet tall. Big guy. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Just his armor was about 150 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the armies are gathered on the hill and this champion named Goliath walks out into the valley and kind of puts out a winner take all challenge. Okay, I'll represent the Philistines. You send out your best warrior and whoever defeats the other, then those army, we don't have to fight this whole battle out. We'll submit to the victor. Well, pretty boastful challenge. Of course, when you're nine feet tall, you don't mind making those kinds of challenges. You feel pretty confident. Uh, And Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, remember Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above all the rest in Israel. So, and he's the king. So he's the biggest guy in Israel. So you can imagine he's really afraid because he knows I'm probably the guy that should go out there and fight this guy and I don't want to go out there. So the whole nation was trembling. But they were operating really only in the natural. You notice here, there's no prayer. There's no consideration of God. There's no idea in, in Saul or in any of the, the children of Israel that somehow this is the Lord's battle, that we are the people of God. And this, these Philistines are coming to take the promised land away from God's people. They're not thinking that way. They're only thinking about the things that are in the natural. They're, only, they're operating completely by sight. The circumstance is completely controlling their fear, their response, and everything that's going on in them emotionally is driven by just the natural circumstances. Now, there is some spiritual application here for us, I believe. Certainly, we as God's people are also encountering spiritual battles and spiritual warfare. If we, if we liken this battle between the Philistines and the people of God, we can say, you know what, God, uh, the people of God face spiritual battles today. We too are opposed. We too uh, have those that want to come and take away from us what God has given to us, our peace, our joy, our, our walk with him. 
And those things are threatened, how? By circumstance, by the natural things that sometimes come against us. Let me remind you of some verses. I'll have them for you on the overhead. You know these pretty well, but we are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6:12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul says, listen, believer, your battle is not in the flesh and blood. It's not in the natural circumstances that you can see with your eyes. There is a spiritual battle behind the circumstance, behind what's going on in your life. There are spiritual forces at work. And the enemy is always looking to take advantage. First Peter in verse five, or chapter five and verse eight says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The enemy is looking for ways to take advantage, looking for places to uh, wrestle back territory from your life. And he uses fear and intimidation. You can just see this Goliath going out and he's he's shaming the Israelites. He's putting them in a place of fear. And, you know, in any kind of a contest, if you can get your opponent afraid, it changes the whole dynamic of that contest, doesn't it? Even whether it's in sports or uh, any kind of a battle, when, when the other when the opponent has fear, that fear actually can become just as crippling and destructive as the fight itself. You have no chance of winning the battle because you're already going into the battle overwhelmed with fear. And let me just say, believer, the Lord does not want us to live in fear and intimidation. There will be circumstances that will seem from time to time overwhelming. You will have some Goliaths taunting and challenging you in your Christian walk as well. You may have be facing some of those uh, obstacles even today. But Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear does not come from the Lord. Intimidation is not the tactic of the Holy Spirit. Bullying is not something that comes from God. That's the enemy. That's the satanic forces coming against you. God has given you a sense of power, love, and a sound mind. Paul wrote that passage in 2 Timothy to a young minister named Timothy. And if you know the context or the writings that Paul gave to Timothy, you know that Timothy seemed to be a young pastor, a young minister who wrestled with confidence. He seemed to be at times kind of overwhelmed with the challenges of ministry. And he began to doubt his calling. He began to wonder if he was really capable or adequate or or competent enough to do this ministry that the Apostle Paul had instructed him to do and entrusted him to do. He wondered maybe if he was too young. He wondered if he was too naive. He wondered if he really was even called. And Paul, in various in these writings, says, listen, don't forget your calling, Timothy. Stir up the gift of God that is within you. And it's in that setting that he says, because God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You have to remember who you are in Christ. You have to remember what God has purposed and called your life to. Circumstances are going to rise against you. Goliaths are going to taunt you. 
But you've got to anchor yourself, not in the circumstances that you see, but in the promises that you know, the truth that you know concerning God, his love for you, his promises to you, and his purpose for you. How do we battle these fearful circumstances? You have to learn how to see with eyes of faith. Paul would say in other places that we do not walk by sight, but by faith. As a Christian, it's hard to discipline ourselves to not walk by sight because walking by sight is is such the natural way that we do walk. We see things and we respond. We see circumstances and we, you know, we're overwhelmed or we're confident based on what we can see. But God is trying to train the believer to not walk by just what you see, but to walk by what you believe by the promises that God has given to you. And faith is only really required when you have to believe it against trying circumstances. Who needs faith when you can figure it all out yourself? Who needs faith when everything is just lying down before you like dominoes? Wow, praise God, I'm walking by faith. No, you're not. You're just walking by ease and and what's put before you. But there will be seasons when God will test your faith, when God will challenge your faith, and he'll allow these taunting Goliaths to come and challenge your faith, not looking at circumstance, but trusting in the promises of God and then doing battle in prayer and being willing to walk in the leading of the Holy Spirit. Well, this is the setting. Israel is in this predicament, and they have a king, Saul, who has no idea how to respond in faith. He's completely in his own natural mind, natural wisdom, natural strength, and he has no answer for this overwhelming army and this champion Goliath that has challenged them. Read on, and we are once again introduced to a young man, a young shepherd boy named David. Verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul. Remember, he used to play the music for Saul. But verse 15 tells us that he would also return from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening, So it's during this time that Goliath is out there challenging and he's doing it every day for 40 days. And during that time, verse 17, then Jesse said to his son, David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these cheeses to the captain of of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So you get the scene here. The three elder brothers of David are off to war. They've joined the the forces with Saul. They are there on the battlefield. 
David has returned back home to care for the sheep of his father's household there near Bethlehem. So they're not, they don't know what's happening out on the battlefield. It's not like CNN where you're getting breaking news, you know, every night. They, they just know that the boys are out fighting. And so the dad says, listen, David, let's get, let's, you know, take these guys some, some refreshments, some supplies and find out what's going on and come back and tell me what's happening with my boys that are off to battle with Saul. And so this is David's task. But a couple of observations here just about this young David. Now, remember, David at this time had already been anointed by Samuel. He already knew by the prophet Samuel that he was anointed and called to to be the next king of Israel. And yet here we find him back home, back out taking care of the sheep. We find him here obediently following out the instructions of his father. You know, this idea of being king, either it hasn't registered with him yet, or he's really just kind of a humble young man and he recognizes, look, that's just, if that's the Lord, then I have to trust God to bring those things about. I can't go, go about myself now starting to act like I'm the new king in town. I should be off there telling Saul how to fight this battle. I should be, you know, letting people know who I am. But we don't see that in David. We see David still really being faithful with his father's uh, instructions. We see him walking in a humility. And I think that speaks of David's character. And I think it speaks in application for us as well. Not to get ahead of the Lord. You know, I believe that God has a calling and a purpose for every life. I believe that there are things that God has for you and me that we have not yet come into, that there is more to come, that God has more to do in your life and through your life. It's not yet here. But the best way to get there is to be faithful with what you have today. If you get ahead of the Lord and you start thinking, yeah, I, I, I'm called to be this. I, I think God wants me to accomplish this. I think God has this for me. Well, you can, you, have, you, know, you can get out in front of the Lord and you can start trying to make it happen in your own strength. We don't see that with David. He's back home taking care of the sheep, just back there doing what he was doing before he was even called, a faithfulness. I remind you of a passage out of First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. I'll have it again for you on the overhead. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You hear that instruction from the Apostle Peter? Now, Peter was a man who did get ahead of the Lord. How many of you remember that? You remember Peter? Oh, no, Jesus, I'll never deny you. Uh, others may, all these other flaky guys, they might deny you, but I'm willing to go to the death. Remember that boast that Peter had, how confident he was that he was going to be the, the lead disciple of all for Jesus? And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And we saw Peter utterly fail in his own self-effort. We saw Peter's self-confidence, ambition, wanting, you know, well-intended, 
right? Good boy, good motives, but all in his own strength and his own wisdom and his own ambition, trying to do what he couldn't do until he was truly submitted and humbled before the Lord. It would be after the resurrection. It would be after his denying of Jesus that Jesus would say, Peter, do you love me? And he would ask him that three times and would restore Peter. And, of course, Peter did. Now, this is the same Peter writing this. So Peter knows what he's talking about when he says, listen, young guys, especially you young ones, be patient. (laughs) Submit to those that are older in the Lord and be just wait on the Lord. Just be humble. Just serve the Lord in the opportunities that you have, knowing that God resists the proud. And Peter knew that better than anybody. And he also knew this, but God gives grace to the humble. And he says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Guys, I tried to exalt myself ahead of time and I failed miserably. But then when I humbled myself under the hand of God, he exalted me in due time, in his timing, in his purpose. This is at the essence of where David is. David somehow in his relationship with the Lord, he knows this. He knows that whatever this plan, this anointing, this call of God to be the king and shepherd and leader of his people, as glorious as that future might have seemed in his heart and in his mind, he knew that for now I need to take care of my dad's sheep. Right now I need to be an obedient son in my dad's home. And I need to take my older brothers. They were passed over. I'm the king, but I'm taking them some food and supplies and checking in to see how they're doing in battle. Be faithful where you are and what the Lord has entrusted to you today. And then in time, God will ultimately raise up and accomplish what he has for you. He who's faithful in little, of course, will be entrusted with much. Well, David goes off and he arrives out there in this scene while Goliath is doing this challenging. David kind of walks into this contest And David brings a whole different perspective. And that's what I want you to see here tonight. David brings the eyes of faith. Saul and everyone there, they're looking with natural eyes at this challenge. David arrives and he has a completely different view. Verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, And took the things and went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. And then he ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them... There was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? They're now talking to David. He's just arrived. Have you seen this guy? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, 
and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Talk about incentive. <laughs> Verse 26. And that, that, I guess, you know, we don't know if his daughter was attractive or not. But it does. But the taxes was added in. So that was. Right. Now, it does say that Saul was handsome and taller and better looking. That So probably had a nice looking family. But anyway, verse 20, 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, this is now David responding. He hears all this. He walks in on this scene. David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Listen, listen to his his listen to the way he sees this. This is this is a this is a this is an enemy of God bringing reproach upon God's people. What did you say the king's willing to do for the one who takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. David brings in a totally different perspective. They're all cowering and in fear and thinking, well, you know, yeah, the king offers all kinds of reward. But what good is that if you're dead and you go out against this this guy? You know, I and David says, you know, he drops the supplies off. He runs out to the army, says, check in on his brothers. He hears this challenge and he sees the fear. He learns of Saul's attempts to to find someone who will fight. But he interprets the whole scene differently. He's got a perspective of faith. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this enemy of God's people who, that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, you see, David sees this battle from a perspective of God's army fighting against this Philistine. How big he is, is he bigger than, than someone that can defeat the armies of God? Is he that big? Is he that scary that even God is intimidated? David sees the Lord's cause in the midst of this circumstance. And that's the key to faith, is seeing the Lord's cause, seeing the Lord's promises, remembering God's perspective on any circumstance. Because I'll tell you, God is not intimidated by circumstances the way you and I are intimidated by circumstances. I mean, let's be honest, we get anxious, we get worrisome, we get fearful. These are not things that the Lord has. God does not get afraid. God does not get anxious. Can you see the Lord? Oh, what do we, oh gosh, Goliath, what am I going to do? Goliath, he's so big. You know, I mean, you know, this, the Lord doesn't have these kinds of worries and fears. God sees things differently. And listen, the eyes of faith are the eyes that see with God's eyes. And you, you see the Lord's vision. And it's totally different than yours and mine. God's perspective is way different. My ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Higher are my ways and my thoughts than yours. Right? The prophet Isaiah. And so God is constantly trying to bring our vision up to see with eyes of faith. And the only way that can really happen is you have to go through some testing. You have to go through a circumstance, a situation where you're forced by faith to see things from God's perspective that are completely different than the natural circumstances that are before you. 
And God will purposefully craft your life to have those encounters. Have you discovered that? He will, you, you don't, we don't really like those moments, but God will see to it that we, our paths cross with those moments. And those are the moments when God is trying to grow faith. Those are the moments that God is trying to grow you and I spiritually to become the children of God and not just natural men and women, but children of God who trust Him, who believe in Him. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you want to be pleasing to God? Do you? It takes faith. It takes faith. It takes the ability to see through the circumstance and hold on to the promises that God has given to you through his word. David sees the Lord's cause in the midst of this. He has a completely different view. It reminds us of Romans chapter 8. You know this passage, famous passage. I'll have it for you on the overhead. Romans 8.31. It's almost like David and Paul brought, this is the, this, Paul is the one writing this, and it's almost like David knew this. David already had this in his heart. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? What Goliath can stand against God who's for us? He, now listen, Paul knew this. David did not have this perspective yet. We have even more evidence of God's favor upon our lives. Romans 8:32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things who shall bring a charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is he who condemns it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. The big question is, whose side is God on? That's really the only question that matters. Who, where is the Lord? Because if, if the Lord is for us, then who can be against us? And Paul puts it in this way. You can be confident that he is for you because he sent his own son to die on the cross for you. And for the believer, Listen, the cross has to be ever at our thought. Just quickly, a a quick reminder, we're never far from the cross because that's the proof that God loves you. He died on that cross not because you deserved it, not because you were doing well. He died on that cross while you were lost and in your sin, but he loved you and he came for us. And he came for us and he poured his life out for us. And Paul is simply saying, listen, if if he loves you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you, now that he is risen and interceding for you, and now that you have received the mercy and the forgiveness that has come to you through what Christ has accomplished at the cross, don't you think he's really on your side now? And so Paul kind of almost like a lawyer argues this case out. How can you be afraid? How can you be fearful? How can you doubt his love? How can you allow circumstance to totally dominate and overwhelm you with anxiety and fear and lack of faith? Paul would say, no, 
God. Think of the cross. Think of Jesus. Think of his love. And with that as your basis of faith, you know that he's for you. And if he's for you, who can be against you? That doesn't mean life will go easy. It doesn't mean that everything will just turn out the way you hope and want it to. But what it does mean is that God will work all things together for good. Because you love him and you're called according to his purpose. You will go through trial. But you don't need to be overwhelmed with fear in that trial. Because even in that trial, God will use it to bring good in the life of the believer who's trusting in him and walking by faith. David sees this from a completely different perspective. I believe God wants us to know that perspective as well. And in evidence and in light of the cross and the gospel, that is such a great confidence for us that the Lord is for us. And this is the difference between seeing things through the Lord's perspective and through simply man's perspective. Well, as, as David begins to speak faith in the camp, it's like, who is this guy? He doesn't, have, doesn't seem to be afraid. He's acting like, who's this, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Uncircumcised must have been really offensive in that day, right? <laughs> who, who, who is this, this pagan guy out there defying, shaking his fist at God and the armies of God? Well, let me tell you, whenever you begin to speak words of faith, whenever you begin to rise up in faith, you can count on the voice of discouragement and false accusation to come and try to buffet you down. Take a look in verse 28, 26, excuse me, 28. My eyes are bad. Is it 28? 26. 28 it is. Okay, sorry. Here's the eldest brother. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. Oh, my kid brother. And he said, why do you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Sounds just like a big brother, doesn't it? (laughs) Eliab, the eldest. Now remember, he was the one that was passed over by Samuel, remember? Remember when Samuel came to inspect the sons of Jesse and Eliab, the eldest, the firstborn, even Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord said, uh-uh, not so fast. It's not him. All the way through all the sons, and it turned out to be the youngest. Well, Eliab was there. He saw that. He saw David, his little kid brother, anointed by the prophet to be the next king. And so now here's this this David, you know, who's supposed to just be bringing some supplies out. He should be back home taking care of the sheep, and he's acting like he's interested and he has something to contribute here. Let the adults handle this, kid brother. Let the let the real men. He's angry with David. He dismissed David as insignificant, having no right to even be there and asking questions. There was no doubt some jealousy in Eliab's heart. David had been chosen by the Lord and he had not for this ministry of being the king. And probably the most frustrating thing that Eliab's heart was troubled with is that David was right. What David was saying was what all of the armies should have been saying. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would taunt the armies of the living God? You know, that's the worst kind of frustration, right? Don't you hate that, husbands? 
The worst thing is when your wives are right. That's the thing that makes you the, the most frustrated. I hate it when she's right, right? I mean, that, that does. It kind of gets at you. They say it and you realize I should be saying that. Who, who is this kid anyway? Get him out of here. And there's this, this word of discouragement that comes against David. What are you doing here? You're just a young punk. You should let the men handle this. This is none of your business. You have nothing to offer here. Very condescending. He says, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Hey, remember, David, you're just a little shepherd boy. Now you're out here on the battlefield with the men facing, you know, this challenge of our lives. You have no importance here. You're just a a shepherd boy. You should be home taking care of them. So this very discouraging and condescending kind of approach. But not only that, false accusation. He says, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. You just want to see the action, David. I know where your heart is. And is that why David was there? David was there on the instruction of his father. David was there in obedience to his dad who loved his boys. And David was there to to see how they were doing. But this, this, uh, this anger of Eliab lashes out and presumes the very worst of motives in his young, his young brother David. And I want to say this to you, and I, I do believe this is true. I've discovered this in my own life. The moment you look to walk by faith, a discouraging and accusing voice will most certainly rise against you. You know, I believe that it's faith that is the most dangerous in the kingdom warfare. Faith in God. That's what God, that's what moves God to action. Faith. Right? If you read Hebrews 11, all those victories, the champions of faith. God did this. They were able to do that. They subdued kingdoms. They brought victory because of faith, belief in the true and living God. And boy, the enemy looks to shut down faith as soon as it pops up its head. And now this accusation coming against this voice of faith, and I'm sure you've heard it, who do you think you are? You can't help. You can't change anything. You don't even have the right motives. This is none of your business. You're prideful. You're selfish. Uh, Anybody ever hear those kind of uh, accusations when you're trying to sincerely do what you believe God's called you to do? What's wrong with you? Really? You think that's going to help? You have nothing to offer. Go back home. Mind your own business. Let let the, the men handle this. David does something very, very important. He does not shrink back. He does not allow his eldest brother to intimidate him. He might have. That might have been a very key moment for David. Look at verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Three important things that David does here that I find in the text. The first thing he says, what have I done now? It's almost as if David anticipated this kind of response from his older brother. It sounds like David had been accused of some things before. Oh, what have I done this time, oldest brother? It's almost like David is ready for that rebuke. He's already discounting it because he knows that his brother is going to come against him. 
And I think that that's an important step for us. There, there needs to be an expectation of challenge to your faith. So you're not rocked, so that you're not thrown off, so you're not really overwhelmed with surprise. You recognize, listen, I'm pressing on in faith, and I'm ready for the opposition. It's coming. And so David, yeah, what have I done now, older brother? I knew you would be here to accuse me. You've done it before. I was ready for you. Of course, my faith is going to be resisted. And I think that's an important step in faith, recognizing it will certainly be resisted. You look for it. You expect it. It's not a surprise to you. The second thing that David says, is there not a cause? And this may be the most important thing that he does. He aligns himself with the Lord's cause, not his own. Look, brother, I'm not saying something from my own heart and pride. Is there not a legitimate truth to what I'm saying? Is not God concerned for his people? Is not God wanting to work in this circumstance as overwhelming as it seems to us all? Am I, is there not a cause? Am I not speaking the truth concerning what God would want spoken? He rightly considers the Lord's glory. He considers the Lord's will and purpose. And this is, what, is, this is what faith does. It always looks for the Lord's cause. Where is God in this? And you sometimes have to sift through the circumstance and the voices and the storm and almost, you know, the, the rage. And you have to see, but where is the Lord? What is the Lord wanting done? What is the Lord's cause in the midst of this? And faith looks for that, and then faith aligns its heart with him. And that's the challenge for believers, aligning your heart with his. And David seems to have the needle centered. Is there not a cause? Am I not speaking what God would speak right now in this situation? I believe at that moment... Goliath was a dead man. Right in that moment when David knew, I am in line with what God wants to accomplish here, it's almost as if the battle was over. This was the battle of faith. The the going out and killing the giant was really just kind of the afterplay. This is the drama here. David rising up in faith and getting hold of the cause of God. And when he found that, when he aligned himself in the Lord's will, the rest was automatic because the battle belonged to the Lord, right? It was always in the Lord's hand. It was always the Lord's battle. He was just looking for a man who would come and align his heart in faith with what he already wanted to do. You remember when Jesus wanted to feed the multitude? This is in the Gospel of John. Uh, this came to mind here. I've just been recently reading that. Remember, he asked Philip, he said, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip said, are you crazy? We, if we had all the money that, you know, in the city, we couldn't, we could barely give any of these guys any money. But it says that Jesus said this to him to test him, already knowing what he was going to do. See, Jesus was just looking to try to get some faith rumbling in Philip. See, the Philip could have said, you know, Lord, there's no way we can feed them. I don't know how we can feed them, but with you, all things are possible. Now, his faith wasn't there. Jesus was training. Jesus was developing. Jesus didn't, you know, condemn him for that, but Jesus was certainly trying to grow faith. He already knew what he was going to do. 
Don't you know that God already had Goliath dead and laying in, you know, dead out on that battlefield? He's looking for David to kind of rise up in faith. This is a moment for David. This is a moment for the nation. And the third thing that David did in this response to his brother is verse 30. He turned from him towards another. There comes a time in your journey of faith that there will be some you have to turn away from. David, this is his older brother. You know, and, and David, you, we can see that David was a young man submitted to his family kind of, uh, you know, uh, culture. He was submitted to his father. He's back taking care of the sheep. But now his oldest brother is pouncing on him. And David, in this moment, he rises up and says, I'm sorry, older brother. I can't listen to this today. And he turned from him because I've got to do what the Lord is calling me to do. There is the Lord's cause at stake. And that's even higher than the hierarchy of you being my eldest brother. That's, that's more important than my best of friends or, my, or my, any, any other authority. God trumps it all. David turned and continued on and began to speak to the other men there on the battlefield. And that's an important step in faith. A willingness to walk by faith letting some things go, letting some relationships go to trust the Lord with your future and with what he has called you to do. You're not going to be able to keep everybody happy and serve the Lord. You're not going to be able to, to fit into everybody's you know, package for you and fulfill what God is calling you to do. David is having to kind of break out of the family mold here. And some of the things that you have hoped for, some of the relationships that you would hope would follow and track with you in the Lord, you need to be ready that they may not go that way. How many of you have discovered that, that that some friends just won't go with you as you follow Jesus? Some family relationships just won't, won't stay in the same you know, way that they were as you are stepping in faith to follow Jesus. There has to be a loyalty to follow the Lord above any other loyalty. Jesus would say, and he would put it in such strong language to to draw out the contrast. He who hates, you've got to hate everybody else comparison to your love and devotion to me, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, friends. In fact, he said even your own life. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Faith is committed to obey the Lord and to pick up the Lord's cause. And David, David turns from his brother. Let me just say those three things. He recognizes that his faith is going to be challenged when he says, what have I done now, brother? I knew it was coming. Secondly, he aligns himself with the Lord's cause. Is there not a cause? And thirdly, He turns away from his brother towards another. There has to be a turning away from any other course and following the walk and call of faith. I believe this was this was the battle before the battle. This was this is the faith before the fight. We'll read next week of David going out and taking care of business out on the battlefield. But I think this is where faith really was winning victory. 
Uh, Spurgeon has a quote on this text. I'll, I'll read it to you. I'll have it for you on the overhead. I, he, he senses this battle as well. He says, immediately before the encounter with the Philistine, he fought a battle which cost him far more thought, prudence, and patience. The word battle in which he had to engage with his brothers and with King Saul was a more trying ordeal to him than going forth in the strength of the Lord to smite the uncircumcised boaster. Many a man meets with more trouble from his friends than from his enemies. And when he has learned to overcome the depressing influence of prudent friends, he makes short work of the opposition of avowed adversaries. Boy, that's true, isn't it? That is so true. Many years ago, my wife and I were just getting started in ministry together. We were uh, serving in a Calvary chapel. And uh, we had, for a long time, not really been engaged in ministry. And uh, this was, we had just started getting plugged in back down there in Calvary Chapel, La Mirada, and really felt like the Lord was calling us forward, and, and we were beginning to move forward in faith. And an old friend of mine and someone who had been a spiritual mentor in my life, who had gone through troubled time in ministry, had something of a a bitter heart and really even imagined that perhaps I, Tony and I were to blame for some of his hardship. And, and uh, you know, he, he wasn't enthused about seeing the Lord moving on in our lives. And I remember that I remember that I was kind of just praying over that and and concerned about that, you know, not wanting to just press on when when maybe we weren't ready. Maybe we weren't called of the Lord to do the things that the God was putting into our heart. And I read this passage out of first Peter three. I want to share it with you and I'll close here tonight. The Lord spoke this into my heart out of first Peter three and verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. If your heart is aligned with his cause, if you're doing what is good in the Lord, even if some will resist, don't be intimidated. Don't let them take you off course. It was just a few days later, the phone call came. And all of this, I shouldn't be serving in ministry. You have no right to be going forward. And and it's as if the Lord had already prepared my heart. I could have said like David, well, what have I done now? What have I done now? But I had to turn. I had to turn from that voice because I knew the Lord had his cause in my heart. And it was that battle and faith and pushing through those discouragements and those accusations that I realized, you know, God had opened up a whole new opportunity of serving him and being fruitful in ministry. And, you know, really haven't looked back since. God has just continued to work and open doors and and use our lives. Oh, there's been ups and downs and challenges and Goliaths along the way. But by the grace of God, I see him still working and still moving in my life, through our lives. And I'm blessed. I want to encourage you tonight. Take up the Lord's cause and walk in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these lessons of faith that we see in young David, even before his stepping one foot out onto that battlefield. The battle of faith. The battle of discouragement. 
the having to see through the eyes of fear and, and, and the, the natural circumstance of a nine-foot giant out there uh, spewing out threats. And David didn't see that. David saw an uncircumcised Philistine defying the armies of the Lord. And he thought in his heart, that man is doomed because God has a cause here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see those things in faith that you've called us to, that we would not be distracted by the natural, by the, by the appearance, but rather that we would see those things that you're calling us to by the Spirit. And Lord, we know that you're for us because you sent your Son to the cross to die for us. And as our heads are bowed here t- tonight, I want to give opportunity if you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with the Lord. But the Lord is speaking to you. I, I've shared it now. I remind you, Jesus died on that cross for your sin. You don't have to wonder if He loves you. You don't have to wonder if He has a plan or purpose for you. He sent His Son, evidenced once and for all. I'd love to pray for you if you want to receive Jesus for the first time. You want to ask Him to forgive you of your sin. You want to embrace what He's done for you at the cross. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe you've, you've fallen away from God, lost your way. Maybe you're like some of the men in Saul's army. You're living in fear and anxiety. You've, you've lost your way of faith. God is calling you back to trust Him, to submit your heart completely to Him, to surrender your life again. I'd love to pray for you too. If you're here tonight, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time or you want to rededicate, recommit your life to the Lord, I would ask you to raise your hand. Let me see you here tonight and I'll pray for you. Anybody here tonight? Lord speaking to you. You want, to, want me to pray for you. I bless you. Anyone else? Just before I pray for this one, anybody, anyone else? You need the Lord. You need to rededicate your life to the Lord. Okay, another hand over here on my right. God bless you. The front. Pray for these two. Anyone else? And so, Lord, for these hearts responding to you tonight, I pray that you would meet them with your mercy and with your grace. The battle really is a battle of what we will believe. Lord, I pray these hearts will believe that you love them, that they will receive what you have done for them in Christ who died on the cross for their sins. They would say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me, come into my heart, come into my life, and help me to walk and live a life of faith. Not fear, not anxiety, but trust. And Lord, to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.